Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast podcast and YouTube channel. It's great to see everyone here, and I'm really hoping for a profitable discussion uh, today. I've I've come to the startling realization that parachurch ministries may actually not be a good thing. Now, this is a, it's kind of a tricky subject because, you know, when you're talking about parachurch ministries, I mean, that that can be defined in all sorts of, in all sorts of ways. So, you know, people start asking the question, well, do you mean, you know, a a, a small number of churches getting together and agreeing to have a conference, um, you know, and, and sending, you know, certain individuals to speak at that conference, uh, or do you mean like the big uh, charge a ticket price for everyone that's that's you know three figures long, um, and 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 build this ministry in a kind of almost like this conglomerate? What do you mean when you say parachurch ministry? Because parachurch just means that this is this is something that is. Uh, that is other than, let's say, the local church. It could be a group of churches coming together. It could be a ministry that's totally without the accountability of the local church. Um, so it, it's not always clear, you know, what a person means when they when they talk about parachurch ministries. But I I, I guess what what's bothering me, and one of the things that one of the things that uh, you know I've been observing. Uh, for a number of years and have have really started to um, think about it over the last, I don't know, month or so with, with the release of Dr. Jeffrey Johnson's book, uh, some of the, the absolute gouges that it makes into the classical doctrine of God, uh, and then to think about, you know, those who came out in defense of that volume now being invited to certain conferences um, and it seems like the orthodoxy or the lack thereof when it comes to that person's or, or those people's view of God doesn't matter when it comes to the conference that is that is not on a, on a totally unrelated topic but not on that particular topic theology proper in particular. And the reason that that has me bothered is, especially as it relates, now I'm not saying that that we can't, you know, share the stage or the pulpit or whatever with others of differing views at all, right? I think that there are things that we're going to disagree on as brothers in Christ that are uh, are obviously going to have to be um, have to be uh, tempered uh, under certain other items or or doctrines with a higher priority, and 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 that all in service of 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 maintaining the integrity of those doctrines and the unity that those doctrines bring about. But when we're talking about the doctrine of God, which is the very foundation of of the Christian religion. Um, to to make a compromise on the doctrine of God, the doctrine of theology proper, so that we can 
assemble a conference and have a conference and and perpetuate the life of a parachurch organization, if we can compromise on the doctrine of God for that, then it would seem that we could compromise on just about any doctrine for anything. For anything that we could that we could attribute some kind of usefulness to. A lot of the arguments that come out in favor of parachurch ministries and, and parachurch conferences is that they're useful for the laity. Well, okay. Um, perhaps they represent a, uh, a, a malady in the church. The church isn't doing what it's supposed to do, so you have these parachurch ministries that come out and, and fill that void. Uh, whatever the argument is, there's never a good argument to compromise on something like God, the doctrine of God. And, and we're not talking about a compromise on some nuance or, or, or a compromise on the way somebody articulates a particular doctrine. We're not talking about semantics here. We're talking about fundamental ontological disagreements. Disagreements that have to do with the very character and nature of God in his inner being that's at stake here. There are differences that are currently being circulated. Uh, and, 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 and it's not just the Jeff Johnson book. I harp on Jeff Johnson because that book was written for a, a somewhat, uh, from what I gathered, it was written for a, 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 a at least mostly lay audience. But um, you could also throw John Frame and Vern Poitras into this as well. Uh, as some of the driving forces really behind this compromise on the doctrine of God. And add to that K. Scott Oliphant, who in Reasons for Faith was talking about problematic ideas years ago with relationship to the doctrine of God. And, and the same goes for John Frame to an extent. And, and all of these men could be labeled theistic personalists or theistic mutualists. But there are ideas articulated in Je Jeff Johnson's book that would put him in the in the in the in the um, process theist camp, which means that he he understands God as one that undergoes change. God is in process. Um, change and, and and being in process are 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 the same. And if they're different, I would like to see an explanation of, of why one would claim that those two things are different. And and unfortunately, you don't get that explanation in in Dr. Johnson's book. But if you haven't guessed it already, the conference that I'm really referring to is G3, which is supposed to be the preeminent conservative Christian, even reformed conference that exists today. And the failure for it to live up to that purpose during this last conference shows, I think, just how difficult it is to have a parachurch conference along those lines and maintain the integrity that's really necessary for a discerning Christian to maintain doctrinally. Because whenever you have a parachurch conference, whenever you have a parachurch, let's, let's not say parachurch conference, whenever you have a parachurch ministry, the danger is that the goal becomes, let's do really whatever it is we need to do, and, and there will be some boundaries established, I'd imagine, but let's do whatever we need to do within those, you know, subjectively established boundaries, 
Let's do whatever we need to do to perpetuate the parachurch ministry. We don't want anything bad to happen in the ministry, so and 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 we we want to do everything we can to promote the ministry. So we're most certainly not going to start calling out potential speakers for heretical ideas on the doctrine of God. And if those speakers themselves maintain a profession of the doctrines of grace, if they maintain a profession of the free grace of God uh, in the gospel of Christ, if they maintain those kind of winsome, let's say, uh, and and popular topics topics and accessible topics in theology, then then let's bring those guys in to actually fellowship with us, and and speak in conferences with us so that we can move along the parachurch this parachurch ministry so that we can grow it so that it will become a a larger phenomenon than it already is and that many people will be blessed through it. Usually that's how it's that's how it's justified. Many people will be blessed through this conference, therefore we need to do whatever it takes to, not whatever it takes, that's a little strong, but we need to do what it takes within reason to promote the, promote the ministry, to promote the ministry and to protect the ministry. And so you have a couple guys who are known for their outspokenness on things like critical race theory. They're known for their outspokenness against uh, the the rampant LGBTQ plus agenda. They're known for these things. They're they're doing good work in these areas, and so you say, hey, well, these guys have these guys have a, a following, you know, because of these topics, and uh, these men have said good things about the doctrine of Christ and the person of Christ and and his work in the past, and and. And they're doing good work in the in the social justice, in, in, the, in the war against social justice kind of thing. So let's bring those guys together. There's not a glance taken at their broader orthodoxy, or again the lack thereof. And so I, I think if I think if you were going to do something like this right, which again it's very hard to do because the goal becomes promote promote the ministry, and the way to promote the ministry is really to only invite people who have a following. Why would you invite no names? I mean, why? that's why Paul Washer, John MacArthur, Vody Bach, that's why all those guys were there, and not, you know, uh, uh, other, you know, some pastor that pastors a church on a gravel road in um, o- Odessa, Missouri. Um, you know, so obviously if you're going to promote the, promote the ministry, you need guys with names, guys with, with followings, guys who will attract some attention from, you know, the evangelical potential audience that you're marketing to. So you gotta, you gotta bring in the guys with names. So, but, but the problem is, is if the guys with names have bad theology, but they speak some truth here in these areas that that you can get with them on and agree with them on, then you're going to bring them in, even though the rest of their doctrine is perhaps trash. So let me let me let me uh, let me give you an example of how uh, of 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 where this could go. So Thomas Sowell is a great economist, and 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 Thomas Sowell is a professing Christian. Thomas Sowell is not only a great economist, a, a professing Christian, but he's a conservative politically and socially. 
And some of that is is bound to to characterize his theological convictions. But Thomas Sowell doesn't have very good theology. I mean, when you open the hood and look at Thomas's theology, he's not he's not he's not where a, a confessional reformed Christian, for example, would be. He's not where a particular Baptist would be. Most certainly, there'd be some major differences there. And so, but but if you were wanting to have a Christian conference on stewardship, for example, you bring Thomas Sowell in, give him your pulpit. I would say absolutely not. You don't invite Thomas Sowell in if it's a Christian conference. You don't invite Thomas Sowell in. I mean, I'm not saying just if it's a Christian conference. If it's, let's say, if it's a, if it's a conference predicated or, or founded on the, on the basis of being reformed, which is, which is G3, they're Calvinistic, right? Um, and it's a Christian conference, obviously. So you, but you wouldn't bring Thomas Sowell into that context, right? Because Thomas Sowell doesn't maintain a, a confession of faith, uh, to my knowledge. And if he does, it's not a Reformed confession of faith. And, and so it would be no personal grudge against Thomas Sowell. It's just like, no, Thomas, you're not the guy for this because you don't believe like we do. All right, so we're going we're gonna to bring people in who believe like we do so that we can not only have a, 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 you know, so that we can not only promote the conference and the health of the conference and the health of the ministry and all of that, but so that we can, so that we can promote solid sound speakers uh, who we would deem solid and sound speakers to the people who are going to be there. Um, so I guess the question is, is we, we, the, how you, however you're going to, if you're going to do a parachurch ministry or, or if you're going to have a conference that, that transcends the local boundaries of the local church, as G3 does, um, then you, you really need to have some sort of confessional standard. And I'm sure there is a confessional standard. And, uh, but if there is, uh, it's either, it's either not known what these guys are into and what these guys are teaching so that they don't, so that they don't, you know, the conference organizers don't understand that they're actually in violation of the confessional standards which is a serious problem, you know, involving the lack of discernment and all of that, but could nevertheless be boiled down to ignorance, or there, there, there are not sufficient confessional standards. And, and, the, and the doctrine of God issue is seen as something that is secondary, if not tertiary, which I'm fearing that's the case, because when I write my review on Jeffrey Johnson's book, and I get pushback along the lines of, you're being too harsh. This guy's a brother. Uh, you need, he loves Jesus Christ. That language indicates to me that a lot of what was being said in Johnson's book is viewed as either a secondary or tertiary issue. And the reality is, is that Johnson was touching upon doctrine that is as fundamental and properly basic as it gets to the Christian religion such that if that doctrine is not there or if it's perverted or twisted or or changed in any way then you no longer if you're thinking consistently you no longer have a christian religion after that and i think when you get done with johnson's book 
which Owen Strayan, who was a speaker at G3, promoted and defended against yours truly, then, I mean, by the time you get to the end of that book, what you, what you have is a, is a process, is a deity and process. You don't have the orthodox confession of the doctrine of God anymore. You don't have the orthodox view of the Trinity anymore. It's totally gone. Now, I would get criticized for saying that, but all you have to do, all you have to do is go and read either the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. They're identical on, on this point. The first article in the second chapter, and what you will find is that when, when you look at just those two articles and those two, those two confessions of faith, what you will find is that Johnson has a different view from what is professed there. You'll start to understand that he at least doesn't have a very robust view of what's being said there. Because after all, he is using the same language and he's, he's reinforcing his, uh, the appearance that he professes, for example, immutability. All right, so he's so he's so he's he's reinforcing that to his readers that no, he he confesses divine simplicity and divine immutability because he understands that those are in the confessional document. But this comes back down to originalist intent. You know, when you're talking about the Constitution of the United States, you have you have the originalists, and and they like to look at authorial intent and all of that. What was the intent behind writing this statement? You cannot interpret that in a way that the author never intended. When you look at the context, the theological context of both of those articles and both of those confessions, you will find that what the what those Puritan forerunners were 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 confessing was a God who is actus purus, pure actuality. There is no potentiality in God for Him to change or to be changed. Period. That is altogether denied by Doctor Johnson. Um, you will find the, uh, it, within the theological um, corpus of, of the day, you will find that those men are going to deny anything touching theistic personalism, anything touching process theism. They're going to deny anything that would cause the persons of the Trinity to be subsistent things in themselves. And what I mean is, is that they would deny anything that would seem to introduce a division or a, or a real distinction into the divine essence, which is exactly what Jeff Johnson does. It's what, uh, it's what uh, Dr. Frame does. It's what Vern Poitras does. It's what Oliphant does. All in different ways and with different words. So, so, but, but, but I want to get back to, so what I think, but what I think is going on here is that the doctrine of God, what, what, what used to be seen as a, a, an elementary fundamental aspect of Christian theology or fundamental location of Christian theology uh, the unity of the Godhead, for example, 
divine immutability and what that entails, divine simplicity and what that entails. Those all would have been quite readily understood even by a, uh, a, a, a younger person in the 17th century. And, and it would have been somewhat understood and, and professed even by those who were not uh, theologically astute, you know, by that day's standards. It would have been understood and professed that God does not change. Um, it would have been understood that, uh, that uh, God is not composed. And it would have been understood that the persons of the Trinity are not parts of the divine essence. Um, they're not they're not divisions within the divine essence. Uh, Francis Turton has a very lengthy, detailed uh, answer uh, along those lines about the the kind of distinction that can be in, that can be observed between the the essence and and the uh, the relations, the divine relations, Father, Son, and Spirit. But for some reason today, all of that is is seen to be uh, a secondary or even tertiary issue. It's it's a theological nuance that that has no place in determining the orthodoxy of our friends. And for for that reason, you can invite a bunch of people to a conference and a bunch of speakers to a conference to speak on the person and work of Christ, even though by any confessional standard they are professing and defending a heterodoxical view of God. And so, uh, but, but again, I think that comes back to the fact that the goal here is not theological integrity is a goal of something like G3. I'm not saying it's not, but I think the higher goal is uh, social unity. And I think, uh, and I think that'll, that entails obviously the, um, uh, the perpetuity of the conference, the, the life of the ministry, of the parachurch ministry. Um, and, and so the parachurch becomes the goal. And there's no place for um, a, a perhaps fellowship-destroying difference to, to threaten that ministry. Because again, the ministry is the goal not the truth of the doctrine of God. Of course, it could all be boiled down to ignorance. This could be one grand, you know, lapse in discernment. But I I actually don't think it is. I don't think it is. Um, so take that for what you will. I, 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 I even, I really, um, I'm kind of even uncomfortable talking about this uh, a little bit because I know it's going to get blowback. And uh, and I know a lot of people went to G3 with profit. Um, and they came away with, with book hauls, as I always do when I go to a conference. Um, and they, they came away with some some better theological insights, some some perhaps mo more motivation to apply their theology to their daily, to their daily lives. And that's great. Um, but you have to remember also that a broken clock is right twice a day. God spoke through a donkey. 
Doesn't mean we need to go chase down speaking donkeys. Doesn't mean we need to, you know, put up with a broken clock. And so, you know, I think what needs to be called for here is some robust theological understanding as to the first principles of, of the Christian religion. And you can't give an inch on those things, guys. You can't give an inch on those things. Um, it, it just, this is, this deals with the very identity of what Christianity is. Because what Christianity is depends wholly and entirely upon the question, who is God? Anyway, I hope this was a helpful consideration and, uh, let me know your feedback in the comments below. If it was helpful, give me a thumbs up. Don't forget to subscribe click the red button and the bell for continued notifications when we drop new content. God bless you.